You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how are you doing this week? I'm doing all right. It's We're over here in peak Montana summer, Chad. Yeah. And I got to tell you, when I can roll out of a UFC fight night event at about 9.15 in the one true time zone after the main event wraps up, get to bed at a decent hour spring out of bed just ready to greet the new day i feel pretty good i feel like maybe these eight fight cards is something we should have been doing a long time ago see a lot of people might not know this if they don't live you know in our general latitude but 9 15 at night it's still basically daytime yeah during the summer you could take a walk uh paint the house Go outside, be fixing on your car, you know, almost anything at 9.15. So, yeah, it's almost like the UFC uh, ended up early, let you go on with your day, let you get some more stuff in. I kind of was having flashbacks to like 2003, 2004 era UFC. Remember those days? Like back when, you know, you might wait a couple months for a pay-per-view card and then it might have like the entire pay-per-view card might have like eight fights on it. And yeah. half of them would be prelims that they didn't even bother to show you. Like they, you didn't even know if they were bothering to record some of those fights. Yeah. I think very few people probably come away from uh, Saturday night's event being like, man, if only there were more fights, yeah. you know, God, I, I could have used eight more fights. Then, then I would have been right there enjoying myself. I tell you what, I mean, you can hit me with two of those eight fight cards per week if you want to. And I might be okay with it. I'd definitely prefer it, prefer it to one 15 fight card yeah. on a Saturday night that takes, you know, basically a full work day's worth of time to sit and watch. I think Tommy Toehold did a video at some point with, with basically alternate ideas of how the UFC could run its schedule as opposed to what it currently does. And one of his ideas was to do multiple events per week, but they would be much shorter. And, you know, you get into a, uh, a situation like you had this, this weekend and it, it almost sounds like a good idea. Right. You well, get like a, a Saturday and a Wednesday, but each one of them is, you know, just a couple hours long. You know, it wouldn't have made sense in the before times when the UFC had to pick up the octagon and move it to a different city for every single event, seemingly. But now, Chad, we're living in the future of fighting. Like we're true. just we're just posted up at the apex over and over again. So if there's ever a time when you could just take some of these fight cards and split it up and be like, here's the Wednesday night one. And we won't even expect that much from like a Wednesday night main event. Like people complain about a shitty main event on a Saturday night card. Fine. Whatever. Saturday night. That's the big night. That's the big fight night. But a Wednesday night. Hey, man, you can kind of just give us whatever. Give us what you got on a Wednesday night. Maybe we'll take that. And you're not going anywhere anyway. So it shouldn't be that hard to maybe split it up. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm, I'm into that idea. I think it's definitely something that could be worth exploring. Uh, all of you out there in listener land, if you haven't already, I, I implore you to go out, pick up a copy of The Blaze, my latest novel. It's a mystery, a thriller. I've been hearing a lot of the little co-maniacs who have bought it and have read it think it's pretty good. You can run out and grab The Blaze today in whatever format you like to do your reading. Uh, remember, if you have read it, 
and you did enjoy it, please go out and leave me a five-star review over at Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you like. Those reviews do help the book. So do me a favor, buy, read, rate, and review The Blaze wherever is best for you. Ben, it's exciting times over at the Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon page. This week, for example, we're going to be finishing up the first season of the MMA drama television program, Kingdom. We got two episodes left, uh, and then we're going to have to make a tough call, probably along with our, our beloved patrons over there at the CME Patreon page, about whether or not to carry on into season two. Have you watched the end of Kingdom yet? No, I have not. Neither have I. I'm probably going to get it done tonight, and then I will have a, a better feel for uh, for whether or not I think we should move on. I would say first season of Kingdom showed a lot of promise. There's a lot of good stuff in there. And then uh, there's some stuff getting in the way. There's some clutter getting in the way of what otherwise could be a pretty good show. Let me ask you this. Headed into the final two episodes of season one, if you're thinking about whether or not you want to continue watching this show, either recreationally or for the purposes of recording a podcast where we talk about it, does it need to do something in the last two episodes to give you some hope for season two, or does it just need to not do some things and hold on to you? I think you and I both agree that the way that the show has mostly handled the MMA content, the way it has handled how it views the MMA world and sort of the behind the scenes stuff, the, uh, the atmosphere in a gym, some of the issues that fighters deal with, et cetera, et cetera, has mostly all been, been pretty good and pretty, uh, you know, true to life. It rings true for a couple of guys like you and I who've been around the sport for a long time. Uh, whereas some of the over, over dramatized, like family dynamic aspect of the show feels like it's a little bit overdone. It's not quite as well written, I think, as some of the rest of the show. And so I, I think there's reason to hope, at least through these last two episodes, that from the outside looking in appear to be a return to the MMA content just from, from reading the synopses of these two episodes. Like I think that these stand to be a couple of very MMA heavy episodes. And I think that that is a good sign for kingdom, but I also don't think that we're just going to magically like wave a wand and get rid of the things that have troubled us. So I'm expecting a mixed bag, but if I get two solid episodes of mostly MMA focused enjoyment that, that feels true to me, I will consider that a win for Kingdom over these last two episodes. Well, and on the flip side, if I don't get a heavy focus on this actual fight that it feels like they spent the entire first season building toward, Chad, I might get so mad I fly to Ireland. Oh, no. You know what I'm saying? Don't be flying to Ireland. Now, see, that's Still trying to get that to take off. Like, I'm still trying to get that joke to catch on. I'm not sure it's there yet. That would be a joke that you would get if you listened to the Friday Power Hour over at uh, the co-main event podcast, Patreon. If you want to join the fun over there, all you got to do is go over to patreon.com slash co-main event, sign up to join the team, support our plucky little independent podcast, keep the discourse unfettered, and uh, make sure that the conversation just continues to roll on to the future. Patreon.com slash co-main event. That's how you do it. If you want it to, if you have a mind to, you can also go out and grab yourself uh, some CME merchandise right now over at cottonbureau.com. We got those for sale, t- T-shirts uh, all the time, whenever you want them. Cowboy astronaut cigarettes, T-shirts, Dundasso T-shirts. They're available on demand all the time. Whenever you want them, go over to cottonbureau.com and get some CME merchandise today. We got music again this week from our friend, The Fifth Element. 
a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check him out over on Twitter at The Fifth Element, Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, or SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. And as you guys know by now, that's the word the with an A in The Fifth Element. Three rounds as usual this week in the co Event Podcast. And now in round number one, Saturday night, in the promotions return to the Apex Arena for UFC Vegas 5, the Golden Boy got sunned by Derek Brunson. So what now? And in round number two, chaos reigned at this event. As a host of late cancellations and other weirdness left us with just eight fights. But hey, like we said, if that's what it takes to get things over by 9.15 in the one true time zone, maybe that's not such a bad thing. And in round number three, there they go. Two of God's own prototypes. Some kind of high-powered mutants never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live, too rare to die. That's right. We're talking Derek Brunson versus Alexi Olenek. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from... Matt Webb, who writes, guys, Joanne Calderwood done went and fucked up big time. Discourse. Now, see, Ben, Matt Webb is short and to the point here in his co-main event podcast email. He knows how to get himself on the show. He's not out here writing a big ass paragraph that we got to sift through multiple thesis statements. Two sentences. Joanne Calderwood fucked up. Discourse. Have at. I mean, okay, I can't sit here and say that. She didn't fuck up because she did go and lose the fight. And I guess that that in itself is a fuck up. But if we're saying that she went and fucked up because she probably could have just waited and had the title shot. uh, I mean, I still think that if you're not going to beat Jennifer Maya here, that you don't you should not be getting in a cage with Valentina Shevchenko right now. Like that's and, and I also understand how somebody would feel like I can't wait around. For Valentina Shevchenko, who knows exactly when she's going to be ready. I haven't fought. Uh, I mean, I think it was what, like last fall that Joanne Calderwood fought last. Like she, she probably felt like she needed a paycheck and couldn't afford to say no. Plus her own current winning streak was that one fight, like one consecutive fight. And it would not be hard if you decided, you know what, I'm going to sit out and I'm going to wait for my title shot. Somebody else could win one or two fights while you're sitting out, and the next thing you know, they look like a more attractive prospect to put in there against Valentina Shevchenko because it's not like people were sitting around pounded on the table yelling, when are we going to get Shevchenko Calderwood? So given that landscape, I totally understand the decision to take the fight. I mean, it's a risk. Taking any fight is a risk. But yeah, obviously would have been better to win the fight. But she got in there, and... I don't know exactly if we've gotten an update on exactly what was going on with Joanne Calderwood, but the report that she passed out after the fight makes you wonder how she was doing, like going in there, if if she was at like her normal. I mean, she looked, you know, fairly close to normal. She got caught in that arm bar and then just seemed like she didn't uh, go quite to the high alert phase early enough and it just got tougher and tougher and tougher. She tried to, to move and adjust and she just got in a worse and worse spot. I mean, Jennifer Maya did a good job with it. Um, I, I don't know what was going on with Joanne Calderwood though. If she was like, just experiencing another stuff. Yeah. Uh, the thing that surprised me about this fight was not that, you know, Jennifer Maya caught 
Jojo Calderwood in a, in a slick armbar because I think we know Maya has those skills and, and she's good on the ground. But I was sort of astonished at the entirety of this fight, just that Maya came out and was kind of lighting Calderwood up on the feet as well. She was, like, yeah. Getting, getting the better of those exchanges. Uh, and even, you know, clinch work, she landed a nice knee. Obviously, the fight was was only a few minutes long, so we didn't get to see a ton of work. But, like, it was kind of an all-around whooping by Jennifer Maya, uh, who came in as the underdog, by the way. And so it does, you know, I don't want to take anything away from her. It was a great performance by her. And Valentina Shevchenko is tweeting about her now. And, and maybe she has kind of usurped that something approaching number one contender status in that division. But at the same time, you find out, as you said, that Joanne Calderwood passed out after the event, after the fight. And it does raise some questions about how she, it just didn't really seem like she could get get out of first gear in this fight. She couldn't really, you know, f- you know, find her skills. She couldn't really uh, dominate the thing like we thought she might on the feet. And then, of course, ended up getting caught in a nice arm bar on the ground. But it, But yeah, I think you're right. It just didn't didn't seem like maybe Joanne Calderwood was was all the way there or, or didn't get, wasn't ready to get started or something. It could have been, you know, something having to do with with losing consciousness after the fight or it could have just been the, you know, people have off nights. Maybe she couldn't she just couldn't get started for whatever reason. Now, you said this on Friday about Joanne Calderwood taking the fight and you you alluded to the logic that if you're not going to beat Jennifer Maya, you shouldn't you won't be fighting uh, you shouldn't be fighting Shevchenko. Valentina Shevchenko. You For your be, own safety, you should not get in there with Valentina Shevchenko. You won't be beating Valentina Shevchenko if you can't beat Jennifer Maya. If that's the standard, though, shouldn't you just be fighting everybody all the time? If the standard is, I can't, if I can't beat this person, I'm not going to beat the champ? Yeah, I mean, it's one thing, I think, if you've got a three-fight winning streak or something, and everybody is going, okay, you, you're clearly next in line, and you might just mess around and take a bad stylistic matchup, or there's always a chance that you just might not perform on that night. But if you are thinking, you know what, I don't know exactly when I'm going to get the title shot. It's not like it's super solidified at this point. And if you think of somebody like Jennifer Maya as like, that's too risky a fight because she's too good and I could lose – well, then, man, like Valentina Shevchenko probably beats both of you. Probably, pretty, I mean, that's how we got to the point where winning one fight in a row was enough to get you in the conversation for a shot at Shevchenko because she's beaten the shit out of everybody else. Like, yeah, that's, really, that's how we got here. Right. She's sort of cleaned out this division already. Uh, Jennifer Maya now three and one in her last four. But as you said, she came into this fight on the immediate heels of this loss to uh, Caitlin Chukagian at UFC 244 uh, and had missed weight in addition to that, in her last two fights. So uh, the fact that she comes in and beats Joanne Calderwood, and now we're talking about her for a title shot, as you said, really only speaks to the shallow nature of this 125-pound class and the job that Valentina Shevchenko, in short order, frankly, has done cleaning out many of the top contenders and and leaving the division with scraps. Like if we're going to if we're going to go ahead and boost Jennifer Maya into a number one contender position on the heels of this performance. I don't think it says great things about women's flyweight, frankly. Well, and did you see the uh, the tweet from Valentina Shevchenko right after the fight where it's just like, see you soon, Jennifer Maya. And you're like, man, <laughs> how does it feel like you win a fight? That's supposed to be a good thing. And in this division, winning a fight and getting the attention of the champion feels just vaguely terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Smokes Levine. Okay. Do you think sure. that's a reference to longtime French-Canadian mixed martial arts referee Eve Levine? Who, if we're being honest, probably seems like a guy who knows his way around a pack of cigarettes. I feel like you're reaching here, but I'm, I'm not against it. I mean, it. Uh, French, French Canadian who probably, I mean, he might enjoy a smoke now and again. 
Well, now you're stereotyping. That's what you're yes. doing. Okay. Yeah. Talking myself into some trouble here. Uh, Smokes Levine writes, Bobby Green, capital G guy. Did this fight show Bobby Green is ready for the next level? Or does it show kind of where the ceiling is on the Lando V hype train? What are your takeaways? So Ben, this was uh, fight of the night. Bobby Green and Lando Venata rematching for the first time since 2017. I believe they fought to a draw yep. that time around. Another action-packed, pretty entertaining fight here in the main card curtain jerker at this event over on ESPN. Bobby Green emerges with the uh, unanimous decision win across the board on against Lando Venata. Uh, this his second win in a row. He he asserted after the fight, if not for the damn judges. He would have won six in a row. Uh, okay. He does, he's got a split draw. He's got a split decision loss. Uh, he's got a couple of unanimous decision losses to Francisco Trinaldo and Dracar Close. But uh, I, you know what? I feel like I came away from this thing just sort of reminded that when Bobby Green is at the top of his game and is, is firing on all cylinders, like he's a, a really good fighter. He's a guy that, that you can't take lightly, a guy that we shouldn't overlook at lightweight, but is, you know, as we always say about that division, it's kind of the shark tank of the UFC, arguably the most competitive division in the entire landscape of the sport, either 155 or 145 right there, both of them kind of neck and neck. But Bobby Green is just another one of the guys in this division who feels capable of beating almost everyone aside from perhaps the most elite guys at that weight on any given night. And I think we saw that here against uh, against Groovy Lando Venata. Yeah, I think he's still in everybody's minds, including the UFC, kind of pegged as one of those guys where if you give him the right stylistic matchup, he will give you a fun fight. Yeah, Whether he wins it or loses it, he will give you a fight worth watching. And I, I think they definitely realize that with the Lando-Venata pairing, because it's kind of a weird rematch when you think about it. Like three years later, to rematch those guys up after they fought to a draw. But it does seem like the UFC may be looking at who was available it's not everybody right now and who could give us a fun fight well those guys were fight of the night last time they did it you put them to like those exact two guys together in the cage they're probably going to give you a fun fight every single time like that's just how that matchup is going to play out it's also going to feel though like it's not necessarily a fight that's about anything super pressing in the division like it's just going to be for entertainment value. And it seems like that's what people have kind of decided about Bobby Green. He can be a fun fighter in the right circumstances. I think historically we've seen that it's kind of tough to break out of that. Like as much as that can be like a niche, like a career niche for some fighters, once people start thinking of you that way, it's hard, I think, for A, you not to just play to that and feel like, get that kind of Leonard Garcia syndrome where you feel like, all right, I'm just going out there and fighting for a bonus every time and rather than thinking about exactly fighting to win or fighting for some sort of self-preservation and longevity. But also, B, even if you string a few together, people don't necessarily have it in their heads as, as you, like somebody that might be climbing the ladder, what they think of as like, you're a fun guy to watch fight. Um, yeah. I mean, careers have been built on frailer ground than that, though. Sure. And uh, a heartwarming moment, frankly, to see yeah. Bobby Green win this fight and then be talking in the cage after it was over about how he just paid off his house. And then we get to the, uh, you know, the, the post-fight interview with, with Paul Felder and, and uh, Bobby Green is, is sending a message to his children, a time capsule message to his children. Uh, they will see it someday and they will know that they have the blood of lions uh, coursing through their veins. So I've all the way around, like I thought, uh, you know, it was good to see Bobby Green put on this good performance. And then then it was it was a feel good moment for him in the cage. And during that post fight interview, it was uh, 
you know, started us off on a high note, I think. Although for members of the green family, I don't know if during the pandemic is when you want to be doing the post fight celebration that involves you just like spraying a mist, like a fine mist out of your mouth and into the air. Yeah. Shades of triple H. Yeah. Like it's, I mean, that is cool. If you can do that, like I I get it. Maybe not the time. Yeah. Maybe not right now. What about Landon Venata, a guy who came into the UFC back in 2016 uh, on kind of a, a high note, I guess, or kind of like a, a little bit of hype, despite the fact that he lost to Tony Ferguson back at that fight night event where he was a, a, a last minute fill in. But I think, you know, that was a fun fight. And he certainly he he was competitive with Tony Ferguson. We all looked at uh, Lando Venata like he might be a guy who could make some noise in you know, at 155 or at 145, wherever he decided to be. But in the wake of that, Ben, he's now three, five, and two. So two draws in the career of, of uh, Lando Venata here. Not the, not the, the win loss record. I might've guessed uh, four years down the road here from his, his UFC debut. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he does seem to have fallen into that pattern of kind of win one, lose one, but he's also still in people's minds. as like, he's going to go out there and he's going to do some stuff. He's going to try some stuff. He's, he's a fun guy to watch because of that. But I also think that that doesn't necessarily always lend itself to winning some of those close fights. That's just kind of the yin and the yang of it. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Chris Rudiez, who writes, judges scored a lopsided round 10-8 and our greatest fears happened. The fight between Chris Gutierrez and Cody Durden ended in a draw. I don't know about you guys, but I feel okay with it. Are people's fears about the downsides of draws resulting from point deductions in 10-8 or even 10-7 rounds way overblown? I mean, you did, in fact, see what the effect here of a 10-8 round could be uh, when Cody Durden comes in basically out grapples Chris Gutierrez in the first round of their fight and uh, spent most of the round kind of up against the fence on Chris Gutierrez's back looking for a, a rear naked choke. And that was, that was sort of his best, his best segment of the fight was that first round after that Gutierrez kind of collected himself, came back and ended up outpointing him in those, in those next couple rounds. We end up 28, 28 across the board, a unanimous draw. Ben, what did you think about this? We're, People are, are kind of always saying we need to be a little bit more liberal in this sport with the 10-8s or the 10-7s, uh, but then it does set up this this situation, this very situation where you can have these three rounders end in a draw because of it. I mean, maybe we just need to get a little more used to the possibility of a draw as a thing. And maybe that's the right result. Like Maybe if you lose one round by a lot, but then come back and win the next two rounds by a little – Maybe a draw is the right result. and yeah. uh, Or maybe we need to just go old school IFL style and work into each one of those bout agreements a sudden victory round. If there's a draw, we go to a fourth round to decide it. Huh? Hmm? It sounds great on paper, but you're three, four fights deep into the main card of a UFC. Things rolling up on midnight Eastern time. And you find out Chris Gutierrez and Cody Durden are about to go to round four. I don't know, man. I don't know about that. I mean, you want to get people suddenly interested in a prelim bout that they maybe before didn't even know was happening or care that much about? Tell them like, all right, we're going to go to one more round to decide it all because this one's just too close. Then suddenly I'm paying attention. You know what I'm saying? Fair enough. Fair enough. You know what I'm saying? I think think it could work the other way as well, but... uh... (laughs) It, It could, but I mean, 
if we're so pissed off about a draw, like, again, like in a fight like this, I don't think that too many people are going to be like, damn it, I really needed closure in that one. I like, how can the division move on without having a firm result in this, this bantamweight fight? Like, I don't think there's a whole lot of people feel that way about like some of these like prelim fights, but right. I don't know. Maybe if we, if we're that concerned about a draw and if we want to see the 10, eight system, like, or the 10, eight or 10 point must system used more and the 10, eight rounds used more then maybe we have to find some way of making peace with that, whether it's, finding a way of eliminating the draw as a possibility or just getting used to the idea, you know, like, Hey, sometimes they're fight and it comes out. Even we call it good. Shout out by the way, to Cody Durden who came in on relatively short notice here to make his UFC debut against a guy in Chris Gutierrez, who I believe was riding a three fight win streak. Yeah. Coming into this bout, uh, Cody Durden out of American top team, Atlanta, one of, uh, one of Diego Lima's charges down there uh, ha- had been stopping everybody on the independent circuit. Five stoppage wins in a row here, ten and two overall. Comes into this uh, into this fight against Chris Gutierrez, and really, you know, in that first round, kind of showed out, showed how good he can be. And then, despite the fact that he lost those next two rounds, didn't look out of place. So, like, if I'm Cody Durden, I come out of this draw feeling all right feeling like I afforded myself pretty well, all things considered. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Next question this week comes to us from our old pal, Eamon Dunphy, who writes, uh, Kamzat Shaimaev has been on all sorts of media, insulting, threatening, and challenging Conor McGregor. Unfortunately uh, for Shaimaev, he sits outside the top 15 rankings and is only uh, two fights into his UFC career. Dana White instantly shut down talk of a fight between them after McGregor tweeted, I accept. So my challenge to you fine gentlemen is to plot the quickest possible course uh, for Chimaev from his current standing through to a McGregor fight. Okay. Uh, step one, fly to Ireland. Okay. Hashtag fly to Ireland. Now see this time to the power hour on Fridays and you would understand what the man's talking about this time when you get there and they ask you, Hey, what brings you to Ireland? Tourism. Don't don't even say the man's name. You are there because you've heard it's a beautiful country and you want to see it and, and bask in its natural splendor and its culture. Maybe hit up a pub, maybe see some distilleries, maybe take a selfie on one of those like lush green cliffs overlooking the ocean. That's all you want to do. You understand me? And then once you're in, you go looking for McGregor to start it off up in these streets. How about that? Kamzat Chimaev catching Conor McGregor in the streets is probably his best chance, right? Because other than that, I don't think we live in a world where these two guys would ever fight inside the octagon. Just cruise around outside the pubs, 2, 3 a.m. You know, like just see if he happens to be standing out there. Like that I might mean, be with your McGregor. Group. You got a better than better than average chance. Maybe you hang like around you outside, outside the, the pubs, the Fontainebleau in Miami beach around four o'clock in the morning. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. But I don't, I mean, the, uh, it, it almost felt like a, a blast from the past of somebody who's way farther down there in the rankings trying to pick on Conor McGregor. At this point, it seems like the rest of the division, the, the rest of the people in the UFC have kind of realized like, okay, let's, let's shoot for something slightly more attainable. Like Conor McGregor is barely even around. He's not paying attention to, you know, my stuff. I, let's go for somebody who might actually have a chance of seeing this and caring and somebody I might actually get a fight with. 
going straight from like I won two fights in the UFC and I want Conor McGregor. That's kind of, that's like some 2017 stuff. I'm kind of into it. Yeah. Um, and then McGregor later posted another tweet because the I accept tweet was kind of out there. Uh, wasn't clear who he was subtweeting with that. He posted the other tweet that leads a lot of people to believe he was referring to Manny Pacquiao. Yeah. With whom he shares better, a management team. Better chance of happening, McGregor Pacquiao or McGregor Chimaev? Uh, in a sanctioned environment or up in these streets? Sanctioned environment inside okay. the, uh, the squared circle. I'm going to go sanctioned environment, Manny Pacquiao. In the streets, Chimaev. Really into this idea of those guys fighting in the streets. Listen, a Chechen dude with the nickname Boars, when he says he wants to catch you up in the streets and he's willing to buy a plane ticket to do it, I take him seriously. No, I mean, he is serious, clearly. Like, as long as he's not just bullshitting about that story where he actually flew to Ireland to try to fight Conor McGregor in the streets. If I told you that there was a Chechen dude on a plane to Missoula right now to catch you out in these streets, you get up and you go lock your door right now. Oh, I, I, I do more than lock the door, man. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving the city. I'm yeah. jumping in the minivan and I'm driving somewhere else, even amid the pandemic. Never think to look for you in Polson, you know? <laughs> no, I'll be up there enjoying the lake life. There you go. Your last question this week comes to us from the Jesse White Deer, who writes, so did you guys hear everyone's favorite goof, Tito Ortiz, has shown interest in a seat on the Huntington Beach City Council. If at any point he doesn't tell the press he once fought uh, with a cracked skull and survived, then what's the point? Seriously, what does Tito Ortiz City Councilman do first? Motion to put flames on the front of the city's vehicles? Uh, please let me know. Thanks, buds, and stay safe. So we, we had talked about this on the Power Hour also last week, Ben, but Tito Ortiz, who's been a little bit all over the place with his current aspirations, decided last week, hey, you know what? City Council, that's for me. Uh, as you and I theorized last week, that is because Tito Ortiz has probably never seen a local city council meeting yeah. before in his life, and he has no fucking idea how boring they are. Although I do agree with the people who say, you know, what would make a city council meeting less boring is Tito Ortiz running his mouth in there. Like, I almost hope Tito Ortiz gets elected because I think city council might be a position where he would be forced to actually experience what being involved in local government is actually like. And I feel like maybe he's there's limited damage he could do. Like, if, if you tell me, like all the Huntington Beach city council meetings are live streamed on like some kind of like web platform that the city government owns. And then Tito Ortiz gets elected to that city council meeting. I mean, the streams are going to go up by like 500% in like viewership. Yeah. yeah. We're yeah. going to want to check that out. Now, see, we joke, but is there a good chance that Tito Ortiz could actually get elected to the Huntington Beach city council if he indeed figures out how to get himself on the ballot? Because I'm going to say yes. I mean, I don't know much about local Huntington Beach city politics at this point, but it is the place where a whole bunch of people were making a big deal about how they weren't going to wear the masks and the virus thing was all a hoax and you got to open this Baskin Robbins or it's tyranny. Uh, so if that was what, you know, a, a cross section of what the populace is feeling like in Huntington Beach right now, Tito Ortiz might be their guy. Zero chance he serves an entire term. <laughs> right. Tito Ortiz at some point will withdraw. He's definitely not showing up to all the meetings. Like no. he's, there's no way. No, he's not. Uh, I wish I had the website where you guys could go donate to Tito's campaign, but I didn't bother to look it up. So that's going to do it this week for listener mail. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com. 
and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, we talked on our Friday Patreon show a little bit about how being... Edmund Shabazian might feel like a double-edged sword at this point because of his relationship uh, with Ronda Rousey as his manager and his association with the Glendale fighting team out there in California, head coach Edmund Tarverdian. Perhaps he advanced a little bit further in his career than your average 10-0 middleweight contender might if you were just some Joe from from some gym in in Kansas or somewhere like that. And that's probably great, you know, make a little money, get a little exposure, all that. But it does get you out here taking fights with people like uh, Derek Brunson, maybe before you're ready. And we saw in the main event of this UFC event on Saturday night, Edmund Shabazian had had his moments. He was he looked a little strong early, but eventually the pressure and the, the, the game plan of Derek Brunson was too much for him. He ends up conceding his first professional loss, third round TKO, uh, after a, an exchange on the ground in the second round that seemed like he uh, could have could have been stopped there, although he was sort of saved by the bell at that point. Uh, what was your takeaway from this fight, and and what what are your feelings now about Edmund Shabazi in, in the wake of this loss? You know, when I was watching uh, right before the fight, and they're showing each guy's kind of pre-fight interview stuff, and Derek Brunson said something to the effect of, "You know, this guy has a bunch of first round knockouts, and that's cool and all, but one thing that that tells me is that he has not really faced adversity in a fight before the way I have. And at the time, especially when we're all looking at Derek Brunson, he's a three to one underdog. It seems like the UFC chose him specifically for this fight because of a a kind of manicured career path. They're looking to lay down for Edmund Shabazian, who they clearly seem very excited about. And you're going, okay, maybe he's just finding something to tell himself. Like, Hey, this guy who keeps winning in the first round, that is actually a detriment to him. Like you gotta, you gotta tell yourself something, right? To to turn that guy's positives into negatives. And yet when you saw the way Derek Brunson went about this fight, you realize like there's something to it because he clearly, he wanted to get through that first round. Like don't get too aggressive in that first round. Don't leave yourself open needlessly. Just go running in there and let him hit you, but wear him down. And know that you're probably going to have to take some shots because Shabazi, you can see why people are excited about him, even in this fight, which he ends up losing. You watch that first round, you're like, man, he looks good in some of these exchanges. And when they're standing there, you know, just at that comfortable distance for him, when he can get Derek Brunson kind of just on the end of his punches and kicks, then he can be like, okay, like, I, I feel like I know what's going on here and I can, I'm fast. I, I'm sharp striker. I can pick this guy apart a little bit. And he landed some strikes on there where, like, Against some of the people he was fighting earlier in his career, those start to set up a finish. And Derek Brunson took him, and you could see kind of toward the end of the first round, uh, Shabazian landed some of those strikes and then looking at him like, oh, really? Nothing, huh? Like, you're still here? And then Derek Brunson had a very smart strategy for how he was going to 
use his wrestling and not only the, like use his wrestling to get himself into the positions where he does want the fight to be not even like yet where you feel like you got to take the guy down but just use it to bull him into the fence and then force him to do something to try to get away from you he needs to get out of there and get back in space and when he does try to get out of there that's when you can hit him and yeah. if he doesn't try to get out of there then that's when you step back and you hit him and he was like those are some of the best aspects of Derek brunson's game for a long time going back the problem was that before he had a difficult time being patient about how he was going to get there and in this one he fought a much smarter fight a much more patient fight and he knew when to just wear on him and, and try to suck a little of the energy out of this guy and then when to open up and explode on him and you could hear it i think it was really beneficial having the no crowd for this one because you could hear his corner at times being like okay you know like where they definitely wanted him to take it easy and not not push too hard but then when he would be able to turn Shabazz and get his back to the fence and they would say okay now keep him there you know now get on him and that was just a great strategy for dealing with what both of them were bringing to the cage and you could see towards the end of the second round you start to go okay he was onto something like Shabazzian has not been in this kind of fight before and he does not know exactly how to respond. He gets tired and he gets beat up. And he is a little bit in like panic mode. You can tell that he's not having a good time in there anymore. And that's where exactly where Derek Brunson wanted to get it. Yeah, early on, it looked like kind of a strange strategy from Derek Brunson. He's throwing that like lackadaisical leg kick out there. Uh, and and Shabazzian was trying to counter on that. But as the fight wore on, I think you got to see the the 28 fight, 10 year career, the savvy of, of Derek Brunson kind of win the day here. And as you said, it sure looked like he came in with a game plan or figured out as things went along. He did not want to stand out there at range at the end of those long levers, as uh, Randy Couture would say, uh, that belonged to, to Edmund Shabazi and that he definitely wanted to, to crowd him to get him up against the fence and then punch him on the scramble, which I thought yeah. was kind of a, an interesting uh, technique for Brunson to use because he really did land some of his best strikes in instances where he had either pushed Shabazzian against the fence or taken him down and then appeared to kind of just try to let him up so that he would have the opportunity to unleash those strikes on him, hit him with a real nice elbow on the break uh, during one of those clinching situations. And then at the end of the second round, obviously gets to the point where uh, you know it looked like he maybe had landed something approaching a knockout blow essentially right at the bell to end the second round and as luck should have it the third man in the octagon is herb dean who we've already been talking about with a couple of uh, questionable calls over the last couple weeks uh putting a lot of work in herb dean frankly during the pandemic era of these ufc events because he was over there in abu dhabi now he's back in vegas uh i assume he's staying inside the bubble this entire time you assume just, that huh ref okay maybe that's a big assumption but he's he's getting a lot of fights refing in here and and uh we've seen some some calls that have been questioned publicly by herb dean over the last couple of weeks i don't know about this one though man like uh i guess you could have stepped in and, and stopped it when shabazian kind of gets saved by the bell there at the end of the second but i looked at this one and didn't necessarily see anything aside from maybe the 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 doctor himself which we can talk about in a minute but i didn't see anything from herb dean that i looked at in this fight and i was like okay that's that's another mistake from herb did you yeah no i thought herb handled it very well because like you said he shabazian's in a, in a tough spot there at the end of the second he's just getting bombed on and you it's hard to tell in those moments like whether he might have gone out there for a second but i think it made sense to not stop it there to wait for the horn and 
there's a kind of a momentary pause after the horn and then he rolls over and gets up pretty quickly after that. And I think like Herb was definitely watching him pretty closely there, but I think that that was a smart strategy because he's paying very close attention to him on the stool in the corner between the second and the third rounds. And then, you know, he brings the doctor in to talk to him, which if I'm, if I'm Derek Brunson and his corner, I'm not happy with that decision really. Cause it's like, okay, we you want to give him his full 60 seconds between rounds to recover and then he gets off the stool and then you want the doctor to look at him like why don't we have the doctor come in there between rounds like why are we giving this guy a longer recovery period uh than you know what i might have gotten like between rounds uh if, if he was beating me up and so then like the doctor takes a look at him they start to fight and you could tell it's in herb dean's mind you could tell two things are in his mind like one is like i'm not sure that this guy is still capable of getting back in this fight and yeah. two, I don't want all these assholes yelling at me all weekend again, man. Like I went, through, I went through that bullshit before. I don't want to go through it again. Uh, so he's keeping a very close eye. And when it becomes clear, like uh, where Brunson takes him down and is just going to unload on him again, and Shabazi just has no answer for it, then he steps in. And I think that that was the right balance between giving the guy an opportunity to show that he can recover between rounds and get back in the fight, and. You know, once you see that it doesn't look like that's what's going to happen, get in there before he has to take the hellacious beating that we all know is coming just to prove that that was indeed the case. Yeah, he definitely didn't let him take a ton more damage in that no. third round. He, he stepped in with a, a fairly uh, quick stoppage there and, and uh, you know, kind of an anticlimactic stoppage really once it finally happened. But Edmund Shabazian certainly didn't argue it. He, he had kind of had enough at that point. I saw some people floating this on Twitter, and I think it's worth mentioning. You know, Derek Brunson, obviously a guy who's been in the UFC for so long and had so many ups and downs that we feel a little bit like, you know, at age 36 now, maybe we know what he's capable of. Maybe we've already seen the best from him. Uh, but just I think it bears mentioning that that at this point, Derek Brunson's UFC losses are to Yoel Romero, Robert Whitaker, Anderson Silva, Jacare Souza, and Israel Adesanya. He's beat everyone else. And... uh at this point, riding a, a three-fight win streak that is Elias Theodoro, Ian Heinish, and now Edmund Shabazian. So, like, uh, that's that's a good record for Derek Brunson. Those losses are, are obviously to the elite in that division, to legit people. So what do we think about him, you know, mid to late 30s now, moving forward on this three-fight win streak and now this kind of high-profile main event win over Shabazian? Well, and what is really encouraging for him now is – that he fought a really smart fight here, that he didn't do the thing that he's been criticized for in the past, which is just like run out there with his chin out. And, you know, when he feels like he has to get in into that tight wrestling zone with somebody before he's been impatient and reckless about getting there. And this one, he did the opposite. And it feels like, you know, maybe, uh, Henry hoof's influence or, or that maybe he's just maturing as a fighter as well. Like you do start to look at the guy and go like, wait a minute, maybe, he can become a better version of himself at this point in his career. Yeah. And then for Shabazian, obviously, as you said, you don't, you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater here. He's a, he's a, a guy who clearly has skills in that division. He's got a good uh, frame for it. He was coming into this fight on the heels of that pretty head kick knockout over Brad Devaris at UFC 244. This obviously, as we said, his first career loss, maybe just a situation here where, where you reevaluate a little bit, maybe take a slight step back and rebuild Edmund Shabazian with, with, you know, some more, some people that are more along the lines of the Jack Marshman, Charles Bird, Darren Stewart type 
mold of competition that he fought in his first several UFC fights than what I think turned out to be kind of a big leap up in competition here against against Derek Brunson. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's time for people to completely abandon the idea that Edmund Shabazian is going to be a fighter to watch and like a, a really good and uh, a guy with a lot of potential and a lot of upside because the stuff you did see from him early on you can you can watch this guy like the way he moves and the way he strikes and be like okay i see why people are excited about the possibilities however if you told me that he was going to do one of those aaron pico things and reevaluate everything and maybe go seek out some advice from a different gym for a little while then i would be even more excited about it yeah, but at the same time, as we talked about on Friday, he's in a little bit of a tough spot fighting for the uh, the reputation and the honor of uh, Edward uh, Terverdian, Edmund Terverdian, over there at uh, in Glendale, which which is a lo- it's a lot of weight to carry for a young guy. It doesn't seem like he could just suddenly be like, well, I'm going to go see what Greg Jackson can do for me. Yeah, well, especially when you come up with that guy since you were a kid, basically since you were a teenager, and then you got Ronda Rousey managing you and stuff. And I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's what I worry about a little bit is that you have all these people like around you and they all seem to like they have their own interests in, in when it comes to your career. And when you're trying to manage everybody else's interests as well as what's best for yourself and your own career, uh, sometimes you don't always make the best decisions from what we've seen. All right, let's go ahead and get into uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me here before we close out the first round. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, Chad, I know we'll probably end up talking about it a little bit in round two, but when asked about all these different cancellations to fights, some of which happened the day of or just minutes prior to when the fight was supposed to take place, and what do you do with them and do you pay these guys their show money, UFC president Dana White said that he was giving them some money, not necessarily their show money, giving them some money and trying to rebook the ones that he can on upcoming fights soon so that they don't go too long. Um, Are you fucking kidding me? You're telling me that some people, they showed up for you during a pandemic, took the risk that, you know, with all the travel and staying in the hotels and showing up around all these people, that they might themselves contract the COVID-19 virus. They showed up, they made weight, they got ready to fight through one reason or another, none of which really seemed to be the fighter's faults in most of these circumstances. Their fight doesn't happen. And what you tell them is, we'll give you a little bit of money and maybe we'll be able to rebook you soon so that you can show up again, make weight again, do all the aspects of your job again, and hey, maybe this time you'll actually get paid the money you wrote. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. How is that even legal? How is it like how is the athletic commission to not have some rules about that? About once you made weight and you did all that stuff, if some if your opponent gets pulled from the fight due to detracting a virus that we only just realized he has, maybe you should just get your money, especially because the UFC already has it budgeted, man. Like you're not losing anything if you're the UFC and uh one of those fights gets pulled from a UFC fight night event where you're just making broadcast rights fees. Pay them their money. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Uh, ben, one of those fights that was supposed to go down Saturday night uh, was Eric Spicely against Marcus Perez. But that fight was pulled and called off after uh, Spicely didn't make weight. He put out this tweet after the cancellation of the fight. He says, for the sake of transparency, this was my first weight cut since starting antidepressants due to the head trauma I sustained in the Duran win fight. Needless to say, it went horribly wrong and my fight is off. 
I will figure this problem out and hopefully be able to compete again. So there was that, and that did not seem like a great situation for Eric Spicely, although on one end, I think you've got to be a professional and make weight. On the other hand, this seems like a situation where we might have a little uh, empathy for the guy. It seems like maybe he's been going through some stuff. I think if we uh, don't even have to read between the lines here, you can just you know read what he wrote here and tell that he's he's been going through some stuff. Fast forward to, I believe, today, from Damon Martin over at MMA Fighting, Eric Spicely was released from the UFC after dropping out of a fight due to a botched weight cut. You fucking kidding me? We couldn't uh, we couldn't give Eric Spicely a do-over here due to his antidepressants from head trauma? That doesn't seem great. This made me wonder, when I was thinking about this, is the thing that really cost him going out in public and saying... This was due to antidepressants that I am taking as a result of head trauma that I suffered in a previous bout. Does the UFC look at something like that and go, you know what? How are we supposed to turn around and offer this guy a chance to fight and get hit in the head some more without opening ourselves up to a liability issue? Maybe so. Maybe he just should have said it was the tiramisu. Classic tiramisu defense. Yeah. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back. Round number two. Chad, to start round two here, I'm going to hit you with some numbers. First number, 11. That, Chad, is the number of fights that were at some point scheduled for this card only to then be scratched from it for one reason or another. Most of it at least COVID adjacent. You had people who couldn't travel because of travel restrictions due to the pandemic. You had people actually testing positive for the virus. You know, you, you lost the main event that way. Lost other fights. You lost one when Jared Mearshart tested positive, and we got the results apparently the day of the fight, just like a couple hours beforehand. Then I'm going to hit you with another number, eight, the number of fights that actually happened. Chad, we had more fights get canceled on this one than fights that actually happened. Yeah. And yet, all that weirdness, it kind of feels like, A, a sign of the times that we're dealing with and that we've we've kind of just gotten used to in a large extent. But also, B, I am holding out this, this stupid small glimmer of hope that when people talk about how pandemics reveal things about our society that maybe we should have already been considering changing or, or things that uh, – ways we need to change our thinking – and they're just highlighted by things that happen during a time like this. Could this be the thing that makes the UFC realize like, hey, this bite-sized card thing, maybe that's a better way to do it. Now, see, I know you're going to say that there's no chance that the UFC pairs back a little bit. Yeah, maybe. I mean, how, how long have we been doing this? How long have we been <laughs> uh, looking around at the landscape of this sport and seeing various things happen and asking the question, Does is this the thing that that finally uh, gets the UFC to to change what it's doing or change its approach to go with something a little bit more fan friendly or something that a little that might you know improve the product from a uh, from an enjoyment standpoint from a user experience standpoint and it just hasn't happened yet and I don't think that this would be the tipping point I don't know what the tipping point would be or if there even is a tipping point at this point I think that the UFC as we have said before has figured out that when it does this model. 
if it pulls off all the events that it is supposed to pull off, it gets a huge payment from from ESPN for its annual licensing fee and and the delivering on the number of events that that it agreed to, to put on during 2020. And that's the whole reason we're doing this. That's the whole reason why we're doing all these events in the first place. If that money wasn't out there, like the UFC wouldn't be doing this out of the goodness of its heart. It wouldn't be putting on all these events. Uh, so my, my standard answer to all of these questions involving everything involving the UFC uh, programming schedules that nothing is liable to change. I think the UFC has found the groove that it feels like makes that makes it the most money and it is willing to sacrifice almost anything else to stay in that groove. Yeah. Well, and also not limited to the health of the athletes. Yeah. I mean, there is the chance we, we talked before about how we have gotten very used to the reality of, Hey, you're going to lose at least one fight due to COVID testing. Right. Yeah. And I guess if you start with an eight fight lineup and you get hit with a bunch of bummers, you could really be looking at a three or four fight card before you know it. So I'm sure that's something that's on the UFC's minds. I do wonder though, in this situation in particular, because we had so many different things, it seemed happen. Like you, the, the COVID test seemed like we had more of an issue with that now, which made me wonder, is that just a reflection of where we are nationally in our dealing? I mean, I, I guess you can't just say nationally because uh, we're fighters from different countries as well, but it does seem like the UFC was kind of telling itself, look, we've got all these safety precautions in place. We're doing all this stuff to make sure that we don't have an outbreak or we don't like make anything worse. And then as the virus gets worse in different places around the country, it can't help but impact how those people show up in the UFC. Like we saw it first when suddenly a bunch of Florida fighters are testing positive when Florida was blowing up. And now it's just like a bunch of different hotspots throughout the country. Uh, Nevada looking like it could be one of them. And we're seeing more and more, it seems like. You can't just completely shut out the outside world, especially when you're bringing fighters in for like a week at a time and then sending them home. It also made me wonder if we're getting Gerald Mearshart's results back this close to fight time, it doesn't seem impossible that, you know, he if he got it earlier and it just didn't show up on an earlier test, like it seems totally possible that somebody gets in there when they actually have the virus and can transmit it to other people, but the most recent test they took just doesn't show it. Yeah. It, it makes you wonder like, if we're cutting it that close, like if we're, cause that, that is very, very close. I think it was like an hour, or at least the, the announcement of it was like an hour before the first fight or so. Like that seems like we could really be tempting one of those situations where somebody is spreading it without knowing it. And then I wonder, do we even find out about that? Because the UFC sends those people home pretty much right away. And once you're home, if you don't have symptoms, you don't have like a reason to go get a test or if you're not, you know, just kind of conscientious about it on your own and thinking, well, I should self-quarantine because I, you know, just traveled and fought for the UFC and it, I was in a risky environment. Like, if you, you might not have a reason to even go find out if you contracted right. it. Like, it, right. it seems to bring up a lot of those kind of questions. Yeah, it felt like we were in a, a little bit of a honeymoon period for a little while over in Abu Dhabi where, you know, people tested positive. Uh, and you, you, of course, uh, Gilbert Burns, in fact, tested positive and had to get pulled out of the main event uh, welterweight title fight against Kamara Usman. But at the same time, it didn't you didn't have this kind of like mass chaos surrounding a, a single event. Uh, and when they did have to make that one high profile change, they got Jorge Masvidal to come over and uh, yeah, sub into that fight, which made it kind of a big blockbuster event at the last possible moment. So this this return to Vegas now where where suddenly we have all of this uh, chaos surrounding this event. COVID-19 related, all these 
people falling off their fights, all these canceled bouts, things like that. It really was kind of like a return to the reality of what it means to put on these events amid the pandemic and kind of a, uh, I guess, as you said, a, a reminder that things are not going that well in this country. And it just in terms of containing the virus, a complete uh, lack of containment actually on the virus and like a complete lack of like a national strategy or a complete lack of leadership from, from people who were in charge at the federal level. And then on top of that, you've got fighters living kind of like a high exposure lifestyle, not, not to any fault of their own, but like, that's just sort of what the name of the game is, right? You got to train, you got to go be around your coaches. You got to be around at least some training partners. You have to be in an area where you, you know, you, you are exposed to other people's breath, so to speak, yeah. like, uh, exposed to other people's germs. And like, then you're traveling and then you're around a bunch of other people. So in a, in a world where there's a highly contagious disease going around, some of these professional athletes, even though they're involved in an individual sport, and even though it doesn't prevent some of the various problems that like a team sport does with baseball or, or football or basketball, you still see people get it, especially in a country that, that is, has basically punted on, on containment. Well, and then I, my question is what happens after they get it? Because if you had Gerald Muirshark come out to your event, and he was negative when he first showed up, presumably you're doing a couple tests like throughout the week to make sure that you're doing one as late as possible just for this type scenario. And then you finally get one that's positive right before the fight and you tell him like, okay, you're out of the fight. What do you do? Do you just send him home? And like, how do you send him home? Do you tell him like, all right, you got COVID-19 now get on an airplane and fly back home. Or do you pay to like quarantine him in Las Vegas for two weeks? I mean, if you're not even going to pay him his show money when he came and could argue probably got COVID-19 just so he could like, or like exposed himself to that risk and got it just so he could fight for you. Like what is the promoter's obligation to the fighter after that? Like that, all that stuff seems like it's been kind of left intentionally vague because people didn't really want to think about it. Right. Well, I think you got to keep him there, right? Like he's, I don't see I how you could tell him like, okay, like go get on a plane and like yeah. we're knowingly exposing a, a plane full of people to this. Right. And then in addition to that, as you talked about, you got the Trevin Giles situation where he passed out right before his fight. You've got uh, Joanne Calderwood who passed out after her fight. I saw today that Giles is, is looking for a cardiologist. You think he, he thinks he might have a, like a heart issue. And, and, you know, you see, you look around in the news about the, the latest studies going on with COVID-19 and how it might affect heart function, even in people who had relatively minor or asymptomatic cases. And uh, you can't draw a direct line between that and the Trevin Giles, Joanne Calderwood situation. But it also is kind of weird that you had a UFC event where two people passed out, one before his fight and one after hers at the same event. I don't recall that ever happening before. You know, you, we've had instances like Stefan Struve pulling out of his fight before his fight. We've had, we had uh, Kevin Randleman tripping on the back and, and falling down before his scheduled heavyweight title fight. But I don't recall a UFC event where, where two people passed out backstage. Yeah. I'd also say in that one, especially the Trevin Giles one, I realize that it's got a, a tricky situation for the commentary team to handle, especially because it's like, you're, you're basically saying like, we're, we're expecting to have this fight next. And now we don't have that fight. We got to fill a little bit of time. And we also got to explain to the viewers why we don't have that fight. And when they say like this guy passed out backstage right before he was getting set to walk to the cage, they know that the COVID stuff is going to be on people's minds. And you wonder if they were told explicitly like, hey, try to do something to slam a lid on that 
because we don't want to let that kind of snowball and get out of control. But they went out there and kind of like immediately and very easily diagnosed him with a case of nerves, like, which is really speculating at that point. Like, if you don't know why the guy passed out backstage, then it's okay to say that. Like, I understand that you you probably have some pressure on you to to say something and, and say something reassuring in that situation. But let's not just go out there and guess. Like, and that, especially with something like that, like, that is potentially serious enough that I, it's okay to let us sit with a little bit of like the ambiguity or just not knowing what, what is really going on. Because at that point, nobody knows what's going on. And like, let that be okay rather than just trying to find the easiest explanation so that we can move on. Yep. And uh, we got full on UFC events, we assume at the apex, uh, you know, barring any change in, in, the situation on the ground here in America, pretty much straight through every weekend until October for the most part. So it will be interesting to see if these problems persist, if we get into a situation where this becomes normal, that we have so many uh, substitutions and so many canceled fights, or if this particular fight night event just happened to be a little bit snake bit, so to speak. But that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Ben, I have to admit, I was pretty excited when the email landed in my inbox announcing the heavyweight main event between Derek Lewis and Alexi Olenek for this fight night 174 event Saturday night again at the Apex down there in Las Vegas. This is just two wonderfully weird, incredibly likable fighters going to go out there and put a scrap on. And at 265 pounds, my friend, I will take it. I will take this fight, even though I can't even begin to imagine what a stylistic fight between these two dudes looks like. Yeah, I know, right? Is you know, you know what Derek Lewis is going to try to do? Going to try to come out there, you know, throw those hammers as hard as he can, and then step back and look to see if Alexi Linick is still standing and conscious and then take a few deep breaths and rest and recover for two to three minutes and then throw some more. And you know Alexi Linick is going to want to test the grappling of Derek Lewis and see if he can find an answer to the Derek Lewis answer for jiu-jitsu, which is look at the ceiling for a while, heave a sigh, and get up. Yeah. Now... I'd love to imagine a scenario where Derek Lewis clips Alexi Olenek, tries to follow him to the ground, gets caught in an Ezekiel choke, and is either forced to tap or somehow slams his way out of it. Because I feel like I want everybody to get to do their stuff here. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like this is the kind of fight that has the potential to get so deeply weird. Also, maybe the potential to kind of suck. But I'm willing to I'm willing to walk those lines. Like I'm willing to walk that tightrope. I mean, don't look now. Derek Lewis rolls into this thing on the heels of a two fight win streak. He beat Blago Evenev back at UFC 244. He beat a light heavyweight upstart, moving up to heavyweight Alir Latifi, the bricklayer at UFC 247. You will recall it only took him three fights in a row back in 2018 to cash his ticket to a heavyweight title fight with Daniel Cormier at UFC 230. Not saying that's going to happen again, but 
that we've talked a lot about the shallow nature of the heavyweight division. Derek Lewis puts puts three wins in a row here. You know, maybe he's back on the outskirts of that conversation. I don't know. Yeah, maybe he is. I mean, this also feels like one of those fights that that the UFC kind of looked around and just went like, "All right, let's." Would be weird. What would be weird and interesting and would kind of sort of make sense for the heavyweight division because we don't exactly know, like who who can say what the future holds for the heavyweight division beyond the the steep a Cormier fight, right? Yeah. Um, also, who's around? Yeah, who's around who can, and available? Who can get to this event? And when Alexei Linick, you know, he comes out and we've seen that he can do this, the the sort of heavyweight grappling where he's a threat to catch you with some stuff, but he can also just wear on you and hang on you and and, and grind you out if he has to as well. And Derek Lewis is a guy who doesn't mind going through a few minutes of that and then just looking up at the clock and being like, all right, I guess I better go for the knockout now. So that makes for an interesting time. Yeah, you got Alexio Olenek also rolls in on the heels of two straight wins. Fabricio Verdum at UFC 249 and the crochet boss Maurice Green at UFC 246. So he's gunning for three in a row. Uh, the ageless wonder at 43 years old. I like a guy like Olenek. I guess you could make the same case for Derek Lewis. But I like a heavyweight fighter, mature in age, who knows what brought him to the dance and is just going to do that thing. Yeah. Alexi Olenek ain't going to go out there trying to be Francis Ngannou. Yeah. He's he, going to go out there and try to do his move. He's going to do his one move and maybe he'll get it. Probably not going to see like a, a, you know, crazy somersault kick from Alexi Olenek. He yeah. knows he knows who brought him to the dance there. Uh, somebody was asking, I don't know if it was on our uh, live chat or something uh, last week where and we didn't get to it. But somebody was asking, like, as a couple of middle-aged dudes ourselves, do we feel a special affinity for the the older fighters like Alexi Olenek. And I guess my answer to that, when I think about somebody like Alexi Olenek being 43 and still out here doing it, more than like an affinity, I feel a special amazement just because I know how my body feels at 40 and it's not great all the time. And I can't imagine how you would feel physically after being like a pro fighter and high level, like mixed martial artist for so much of your life. What is it like to wake up each morning? as Alexi Olenek. There got to be a few aches and pains and to still be able to push yourself through all that, get in a full training camp and show up and fight a guy like Derek Lewis. I, more than anything, I'm just impressed. Yeah, no, I agree. And again, I think it like a lot of it has to be uh, experience and just sort of like being resigned or being comfortable in your own skin to, to and, and being aware of what you are capable of. Like I doubt very seriously, um, I mean, I could be wrong, but I doubt very seriously that Alexi Olenek is like sparring a bunch of real hard rounds before he goes out there to have a fight like this. I bet he is getting his cardio together, making sure that uh, that his striking game is as, is as primed as it can be. And other than that, like, again, like I said, focusing on the skills that brought him to the dance, like his, his game plan here almost certainly is not to go out there and slug it out with Derek Lewis, right? His game plan is get this guy down if you can and hit one of your moves on him. Do one of your subs, man. You think uh, maybe a foam roller is also involved in Alexi Olenek's routine? I guarantee you there's a foam yeah. roller. Got to be a foam roller. He's probably roller. got a foam roller in every room at the Olenek house. <laughs> hitting the quads, yeah. hitting the you glutes. Ne- you never want to be too far away from a foam roller if you're a 43-year-old pro fighter. Rolling out the IT bands. Yeah. Oh, getting yeah. Up, getting up into the lats. Mm-hmm. Getting up into the lat area, latissimus dorsi. Yeah. Yeah. No, he knows what's up. There's got to be just large chunks of the day blocked off for stretching. 
Uh, also on this card, Ben, let's just say, talk about it for a minute here before we, we wrap the show up. Chris Weidman. Yeah, how about that? Who has been rumored uh, opposite a couple of different opponents at this point. He's going to fight Omari Akhmedov, who comes into this thing on the heels of uh, essentially five straight wins in the UFC with a draw to Marvin Vittori mixed up in the middle there. So uh, a guy who has really been rolling, albeit against some lesser known competition, now going to get the chance to fight the former champion at this weight in Chris Weidman, a guy who obviously has uh, has receded a bit from his previous greatness and it comes into this fight amid a, a one and what, five streak over his last six fights. And of course, we all remember the ill-fated venture up to heavyweight yeah, against Dominic light heavyweight. Reyes. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, yes, light heavyweight against uh, Dominic Reyes in October. So uh, that's an interesting matchup. And again, just looking at it, feel like you can see the wheels the wheels spinning in the minds of the matchmakers. Yeah. This does feel like a kind of a moment of crisis fight for Chris Weidman that yeah. if if Chris Weidman can't win this fight, everybody's going to be looking at him like, "Man, how much longer are we going to do this?" Uh, cuz it doesn't seem like there's a bright future ahead right now. And it's like this is him fighting for his continued relevance in MMA it seems. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's do just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week, Ben. I know that I have harped on this in the past. I've said it before on the show, but I'm just going to bring it up one more time now because we are legitimately in a situation where UFC events routinely have four different names. (laughs) And I would point you to UFC Fight Night Brunson versus Shabazian also known as UFC Fight Night 173, also known as UFC on ESPN Plus 31, also known as UFC Vegas 5. So I guess this week I'm just saying, the fuck are we doing here, guys? Let's figure out a name for these events. Let's get an industry standard for these events, and let's call these events by that name so that we don't have to have four goddamn names for every UFC event. I'm just yeah. saying. And I kind of don't even care what name we decide on. I mean, I would prefer... No. Call if- every single one of them UFC heavy hitters for all I care. <laughs> every single one of them, just so I don't have four different names. Bitter Rivals, maybe? Yeah, let's uh, go with Bitter Rivals. The only one I really feel strongly against is UFC Vegas 5. Because for one thing, there have been roughly 2 million UFC events in Las Vegas over the years. So Correct. like it's the worst city to try to name just like stick a five at the end of it. What you mean is like during like at the apex during the pandemic, which is you're leaving a subtext there. Um, all the rest of the names. Fine. Let's just pick one, agree on it and move forward from there. We need to get the greatest minds in the sport together and figure out what we're going to call these events. And then we'll put out a press release and everyone will know. Yeah. We'll be done with it. We'll and just the, be done with it. The first line of the press release will read, listen up, fuckers. Yeah. And then it's just going to tell you what's what. Yes. I'm just saying. Just saying. Uh, Chad, my just saying stuff, we didn't really talk about Vicente Luque's knockout of Randy Brown there at the end of the second round on this event. But maybe let's spare a moment just because here is one of those fights where the empty arena makes it even more clear what god-awful violence this man is unleashing upon another human being 
Yeah. Vicente Luque, like, he does a pretty sweet little move there to kind of lift Randy Brown up so that he can knee him in the head legally. And that hurts him, drops him up against the cage there as the, the time's winding down in the second round. And then just like, like he is digging a hole in the backyard, just heaving these right hands at Randy Brown's head. It reminded me of when Norman Mailer described a, uh, a boxing match and the sound of the punches landing, comparing it to an axe chopping into damp wood in the distance. Like that's that sound where it just sounds like somebody is trying to smash a pumpkin open and it just, it is revolting and yet awe inspiring in another way. Vicente Luke is a bad man. I'm just saying, yeah. I'm just saying the silent we, assassin. The, once we get a chance to, to hear what the asylum assassin can do in an empty arena, you get a real sense that you don't want to be punched in the head by that guy. I'm just saying. I agree. Uh, you know, I will take a fight with some calf kicks. I know you will. I know you and will. He, and the silent assassin kicked the ever loving shit out of Randy Brown's calves in this fight. Uh, I like that Vicente Luque, again, like not that he's an, an older gentleman, but he's a guy who's like, okay, this is what I do. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to go out here and throw some damn spinning back kick or like be doing barrel rolls throughout this thing. I'm not going to trash talk. I'm not going to be taunting you like a Diaz brother. I'm just going to go out there and like calmly – pick you apart with with terrible leg kicks and straight punches for the most part and eventually uh you will die from it and you will die you i like I mean, that eventually you will die and who knows eventually, randy brown might die of cancer 40 years from now and we can't conclusively say that the, the kicks had nothing to do with it right that's right yeah yeah we all will die not all of us will die at the hands of vicente luque uh many of us for it many, many of, of us, us will, will. Yeah. In any case, that will do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back all this week over on the Patreon page. Get over there uh, and check out the cool things we got going on. Patreon.com slash co-main event. Join the team. And then a week from today, of course, back again for the free Monday proper, just like every week. Be looking ahead to uh, Cormier versus Stipe 3, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's coming that, up. Uh, UFC 253 is, is rocketing toward us with very little warning. Uh, so that's exciting. But as for right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. I'm listening. It feels like the lawn mowing has finally stopped. They must know that we're done recording a podcast. Yeah, they probably got it timed out. The guy's like, all right, they're probably wrapping up. I can go ahead and shut off the mower now. One of my neighbors does the thing where he seems to have a constant stream of workmen coming to and from his house, and every time I pass by there, it seems like he's the guy who hires workmen to do a job and then is going to stand around with a coffee cup and just watch him do the entire thing. Yeah. Which I, I respect. That's a classic, like, old guy move. You know who loves that? Who? The workmen. The workmen <laughs> absolutely love that. Yeah. If you just, just stand watch him work. Yep. Just comment on every once in a while. Is that a 9-volt? Cool. Nice.